Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. And one of the things I'll say is that agility and adaptability have been two of the competencies, if you will, maybe we should say characteristics, that we're always looking for in our leaders. And we know that when we have more agility and more adaptability, we end up with better leadership, we end up with better collaboration, and we end up with better change management and crisis management and leading people through uncertain times. There's sort of two core qualities that keep coming up over and over and over again. The problem is, how do you get better at that? And I'm going to argue the only way you get better at it is actually practicing. So how do you practice more adaptability? How do you practice more collaboration and better communications? And as it turns out, we believe today, or at least my guest believes today, that improvisation work, as in improv theater, is probably one of the best laboratories that's available. However, if you've ever done an improv theater session, you're going to find that this is a little bit different because we want to make sure that we're aligning these activities, these practices with standard business practices. So I think you're going to find this is a bit of a unique approach. My guest today is Bob Coolhan. And Bob has spent the last two decades linking improvisation to business through the means of behavioral science. He is an elite improv actor himself, but he's also a consultant and trainer, and he's the founder and CEO of the Business Improv, which is a world-class leader in developing experiential learning programs for businesses. Now, Bob has spent 26 years performing and teaching improvisation internationally, and he started his career, I might add, with the famous Chicago's Second City both as a master artist and as a core faculty. And he's gone on to do a number of improv things, like IO Improv Olympics and a host of others. And then his consulting and teaching work um, in managerial improvisation has, you know, broadly focused on areas like building creative collaborative cultures, breaking down the barriers to creativity, managing conflict, building stronger teams, improving communication. We could go on with the list. And he's worked with a large number of impressive companies like Google, Ford Motor Company, Cushman Wakefield, SAS, Mazda, American Express, Glaxo, DuPont, Hilton Hotels, um, Jumurai, Emirates Towers in Dubai, Pepsi, Capital One, I could go on. That's just the beginning. I will also say that he is an adjunct faculty at both the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University as well as at Columbia School and has taught at a number of other universities. He's the author of Getting to Yes And. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. That's a that's good, quite a intro you gave me there. So thank you so much. <laughs> You've done quite a lot. It's an impressive background. So I'm kind of excited about this conversation. I know a bit about improv theater. I've seen it. I've participated in workshops, and I know you have a little bit of a unique angle. But before we go down to the angle, I want to spend a bit of time on you. Because I want to know from you why you're so passionate about this improv thing and, you know, what kind of what convinced you that this was such a good medium? Well, 
uh, I'm passionate about improvisation. I mean, it started when I was 19. I, I essentially packed up my bag and went up to Chicago from downstate Illinois and learned from uh, the person who would eventually become my mentor, Martin DeMond. He created the Second City Training Center. And as soon as I took my first class, I knew this was this was like skin to me. This was what I was supposed to be doing. It's all about connecting with people, listening to people, engaging people. I mean, at, at its core, improvisation is a communication and collaboration-based art form. Its output is output is creativity. However, it's rooted in communication and collaboration. And just connecting with people and playing with people, building off people, supporting people, and being supported as well in that whole process, it's just really part of my DNA. So my undergrad was in business, and I essentially as soon as I graduated college in 1994, I, uh, I was a very successful young businessman, won a Bank of America award uh, for creative marketing, and then left the business world and immersed myself in improvisation for the next five years that would follow that. And um, just saw inherent links between improvisation and business. I loved business. I love improv. And when I had the opportunity to create the first improv program in any business school at Fuqua, I jumped at it because I knew that this would help people. And cut to 21 years later, still doing it. Yeah. Obviously quite passionate about it to leave a strong career and then go off to create something else. Um, You have a wonderful story I've heard you tell about what got you hooked on that first improv to realize that it was harder than it looked and how powerful it was. Can you tell us the story about some of those first experiences? As it relates to business or as it relates just to the art of improv? To the art. To the art. Ah. Well, just, you know, watching elite improvisers perform. When I was 19, I was um, the only only uh, mascot ever of the Second City, and, and I would get paid, uh, you know, poorly. However, part of my compensation was going to watch the main stage show, and I'd, I'd get to watch Steve Carell and Steve Colbert and these master improvisers perform, and then I was taught by, coached by, rather, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, who were at the Improv Olympic that you mentioned as well, doing long-form improvisation, and just the, the ability to create in the moment and on the spot with other people as well who are doing the same thing with a common focus, a common goal, you know, celebrating individual perspective, celebrating diversity of thought, and at the same time be completely aligned with what we're trying to do with this as we're going forward, it's, it's magic. You know, it's, the, it's, it's romantic. It's the opportunity to celebrate what's happening as you're present in the moment, in real time, and then poof, it's gone. So either you capture that moment and you celebrate that moment and you live in that moment or you've missed that moment. And that to me is incredibly powerful. And I said romantic because it, you can't recreate it. You cannot be create the same scene again. You cannot create the same relationship again. You're not going to have a relationship with the same audience again. And so it's that single moment that is super precious, super powerful. And if you can capture it and live in that moment and really be present in that moment at a high level, that's powerful as well. So how did you learn? So we all say be in the moment. It's kind of become a bit of the catchword at the moment, but it's a whole other thing to actually do that in improv. So how did you learn to be that present to the moment right there? Well, you have to slow the brain down. There's a a phrase that you learn very early in Chicago improv called think slow to move fast. And very often, especially in times of chaos and risk and uncertainty and crisis, we're just 
the brain is just moving a thousand miles an hour. However, the special forces have a similar phrase to think slow to move fast, and that is slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And it's the ability just to slow the world down, like Neo in the Matrix when the bullet's passing him by, seeing the ripples behind the bullet. It's the ability to connect with people and listen to people, even when everyone's running with, around with like chickens with their heads cut off around you. You have the ability to connect. And that ability to slow the brain down then means that you are really focusing on the people around you at a high level. You're focusing, of course, on their, what they're saying. Words become gold to you, and gold is very, very precious. You don't just throw gold to everybody, and you don't just, if somebody's giving you gold, you don't ignore them. So words become very powerful and precious even, and then nonverbal communication becomes a gift. It's an offer, and everything then is the opportunity to capitalize on something. So whether it's nonverbal communication, verbal communication, just the action in the moment, being in the moment and slowing the brain down, it all comes hand in hand with each other to create a great improvisational monologue, uh, dialogue, scene, show, musical, whatever it might be. I guess, you know, Robin, listening to you say, I love that, that words are gold and that you treat them like gold. That is that precious. It is as precious as gold and you can't ignore it. That's boy, that's a strong statement. And that the nonverbal clues are gifts and offers. And it just occurs to me and listen to you talk that if um, no one has ever understood how improv theater works, they might be lost in this conversation. Because so can you give us a sort of one minute summary of how improv actually works? I will try. Okay, so improvisation is creating something in the moment. And uh, for me, it's based on three core competencies. And these are a little bit more business improv core competencies, yet it's true regardless of how you the improvisation manifests itself. The core competencies are reacting, adapting, and communicating. So reacting is ongoing. It's, it's in the moment at a high level. It's not a reaction. That's, a, that's impulsive. Reacting is ongoing. Adapting is if you're reacting within parameters, and then you're always communicating with each other. And when you're, cre- when you're reacting, adapting, communicating on a stage in front of an audience, quite often the output is comedy. You're doing, whether it's short-form scenes, like whose line is it anyway, or long-form where you get one suggestion, a cup of coffee, and go for 30 45, 60 minutes, 75 minutes, 90 minutes, however long that long-form improvisation is. And then it can really take a lot of different shapes and forms, like musicals or one-act plays. So it's really the creation of something in the moment. Okay, and just for the record, this is not rehearsed. When we're going to watch improv, we're not seeing people who've rehearsed this scene, know how to do this scene, and kind of pretending that they're making it up in the moment. They are actually genuinely making up the lines in the moment. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you practice. You, you said it before. It's about getting the reps in. You practice, 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 practice. You always practice. However, once it's showtime, especially in Chicago, we're, we're quite snobby about this. Um it has to be organic. It has to be organic to that moment and organically created in the moment. Because if you start recycling bits or recycling characters, you typically get called out by the vet improvisers who will you know, grab you by the nape of the neck and be like, you've done that one a couple of times. Like, yeah, okay. So we don't want to do that again. So it really is created in the moment at, at a very high level. And again, once again, it's collaborative. So even solo improv, you're, you're collaborating with the audience in creating it. So it has to be part of that, that DNA. So it's a co-creation in effect. I do something, the other person responds, 
Then I respond and off we go. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Sounds like business to me. One group takes an action, a leader takes an action, other people react to that action, then you do a different action or you say a different thing, and then off we go in a meeting or a webinar or whatever it is that you're doing at the moment. So let's take this notion of improv theater from Second City and from others and translate it into business. And what I'm interested in is kind of give me an example of how you think about improv being applicable to business. Sure. So, and once again, this is the business improv spin of it, so it's going to be a little different than comedic or theatrical improvisation. So going back to those three core competencies, reacting, adapting, communicating, and if we just focus on those core competencies, the real question would be, where is it not applicable in business, let alone life? (laughs) Yeah. And, And so, you know, on the team level, you're really talking about listening, understanding each other, creating a psychologically safe space in which people are not afraid to talk to each other and communicate with each other, you know, not focusing on on why people are wrong or or why something can't work, rather focusing on possibility and potential and saving the editing process for a different time. It's very needed. It's not to dismiss editing. It's not to dismiss judgment. You're just postponing judgment in the moment. So collaboratively, we're getting the best out of people and things like diversity and uh, different perspectives get celebrated as opposed to squashed. On a leadership level, it's communicating and uh, valuing the team around you, being vulnerable enough to accept uh, what other people are saying to ultimately get to the best decision. It's panning. I liken a lot of this to panning for gold. That when you go to a river to pan to get gold, would you rather stick two fingers on a thumb and pinch out? the dirt from the ground or stick a pan in. We're talking about increasing the probability for success in that editing process. We assist, you sort, you you get the weeds out, the muck out, the fool's gold out of the way. And also it's about as in a leadership position, it's about embracing change. It's about agility and adaptability and then leading people in that capacity as well. So it's really applicable way beyond an ideation session or a brainstorming session. It's about creating team. It's about creating leaders. It's about creating culture. And I mean this in both an on-site setting and virtually as well. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine that. So give me a technique that you would use with a business audience to help them understand how to do this reacting, adapting, and communicating. I can see how those would be enormously valuable, as you said, in terms of building the culture or building the team or persuading people to go along with the change or generating ideas or just unpacking a complex problem, for that matter. So give me an example of a technique you would use. Absolutely. The first you know, fundamental technique. It's the foundational building block of all improv, and that's yes and. Yes is unconditional acceptance. You give me this gift, this offer, this opportunity, I'm going to accept it. I don't necessarily, I'm not saying agree with it. Yes is not, you know, blind agreement. It's not I'm going to take your bad idea and execute it and get arrested for it. It's okay. I'm, I'm accepting that you're giving me this. I'm accepting this is what's happening at this moment, and you're giving it to me, and I'm trying to accept it on your terms. 
And then is the bridge to how you accept it. And is the bridge to your voice, your authentic perspective, your education, your understanding of how it fits in the overall big picture. So more than anything, yes becomes thoughtfulness. You have my undivided attention in this moment right now. And and is the bridge to how you are thoughtful, how you are present, how you are in the moment. So, yes, I like that. Unconditional acceptance, not agreement. And I'm accepting it on your terms and offering it. And and the thoughtfulness, my voice, and how I accept it. Yes. Okay? Absolutely. Are, so a lot right, of people, so, though, will dismiss improv or specifically yes and as if yes and is dismissal of their own perspectives and their own ideas, that I have to unconditionally support your ideas. And that's not what it is. It's actually the reverse. It's unleashing everybody's voices and understanding of it. And it's super important, especially today, when people are a bit concerned and morale might be a little challenged, as a a technique to connect with people and listen to people. So more than squashing individual perspective, it celebrates it and and unleashes it. So we're now into how do you create a diverse and inclusive culture? And I will also say from everything we know, that's what it takes to create a collaborative culture. When I'm really willing to listen to the alternative perspective without judgment um, to hear what that's offered. So can you give me an example of what this, what yes and looks like in practice? Yes. And this is the example in real time because I'm listening attentively to what you're saying. You're listening attentively to what I'm saying. So that even if not, vocally um, verbatim brought out with a yes and, it's the implied yes and, that we're both listening to each other at a high level and we're simply responding to what the other person is saying. So just in a casual conversation, we are actually practicing yes and and the yes and philosophy to connect with each other, engage each other, build off each other, respond to each other. Okay, okay. Reminds me of, you know, Stephen Covey's, the, the book has been around for a long time, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Fee- People, where it was, the one of the habits was seek first to understand. Mm-hmm. It sounds very similar. Am I right in that or wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. So by slowing the brain down and really listening to somebody and trying to understand what they're saying, you are listening to understand as opposed to listening to respond. And that's a, a human communication pitfall that we have quite often, that we think about what we're going to say next, or we just want to get our voice out there because I want to be heard. And what this really does is slow the brain down so that you are seeking to understand, and then you respond in turn. So even using yes and does not imply speed, for the record. If you're really going to be thoughtful in your response, then you are slowing down. You are digesting what somebody is saying to you before you impulsively to say anything. I think, you know, we always say that people listen to respond, but I think people get afraid that if they just listen to understand, they're signaling acquiescence, they're signaling acceptance, and they get worried that they have to squish that acceptance really, really quickly, as opposed to knowing how to listen to understand without signaling acceptance. Absolutely. Yes, this is not... Even using yes and, you can say no to somebody by using yes and. For example, I could say, you could tell me um, that I'm, I'm wearing a pink um, full-body onesie right now. And though nobody can see me, I, could, I know I'm not. So rather than tell you you're wrong, I could say, yes, 
and maybe we have to renew your prescription for your meds or something like that. It's like, yeah, you're not quite on base. Also, though, yes, and can be used directly as, as the no. So you're not acquiescing. You're saying, yes, I hear what you're saying, and we cannot do that right now. And this is not fed in our budget, and this is not fed in our timeline. It's logistically impossible right now to do this. So it's really focusing on building the relationship before you say no to somebody and shut it down. You know, my father ran power plants in downstate Illinois. He was the senior superintendent. And he used to tell me, you have to know when to put a steel toe boot on and kick, and you have to know when to put your arm around somebody and take a lap around the outside of the power plant, which is significant walk you're taking with somebody. And really what we're focusing on when you're using yes and to disagree with somebody is to disagree without being disagreeable and focusing on why somebody's saying something to you as opposed to why they're wrong. You said earlier, words are gold. So I'm going to pick this up. I find a lot of people say, yes, but. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with yes, but? And why is that different than yes, and? This is a Great question. I've, for 20 years, this is our 21st year, I've asked this question, and I've asked it around the world, even through different languages, and even if yes and and yes but is not part of the indigenous language of the culture in which I'm teaching this, uh, everyone still has the same answer. And that answer is, it's a military axiom that I go to when asked this question. The answer is, but eliminates everything said before it through restrictions, denials, contradictions, steering, and and builds on what's being said before it. It connects to it. It creates forward movement. And the reality is, between the two of them, you could actually argue, if, it, if but does contradict everything said before it, and, and always builds on what's said before it. What you can't argue, though, is how it makes people feel. So, especially as this relates to influence and leadership, you're By using but, quite often, it feels like you're undermining what somebody else said. It feels like you're dismissing it. It feels like you're doing an argument or a point-counterpoint, whereas and feels like you've listened, and feels like it's a connection, and feels like you're, you're responding thoughtfully to what the person said. And this then relates to the behavioral sciences. It relates to creating culture, and it relates to um, getting building from people, getting connection from people. And so... Using but could be very dangerous. I often say to people, especially around coaching, and especially when we've done some 360 feedback and we're processing that feedback and trying to understand it and knowing how to respond to it, that when you say yes, but, what you're basically doing is being defensive about the feedback. You're shutting it down. Mm -hmm. Now, would you agree or disagree with my summary on that one? I agree, 100%. And that sort of and argument that I made before, which is even if you're not intending to do it, that's how you make people feel. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's a yes and mindset, and it's words yes and, and it's body language that's yes and. So that I am saying in every way, yes, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Yes, I'm listening. Yes, your voice matters. And I'm going to take the time to respond in a thoughtful way, even if what I say is I don't want to do what you're advocating. All right, so how do you practice this? 
every with every this is a great technique you can use across the board. You can use it at work, definitely that's where we're focusing it. You can use it with your significant other in your house today. You can use it with children. You practice over and over and over again and what invariably happens when people start practicing this, they become hypersensitive to how often the word but comes out of our mouths. We're saying it to children, we're saying it to our significant others, we're saying it to our peers, our employees, our superiors, and that that recognition then really creates an accountability practice for us to continue to use yes and over yes but. So you can practice it in just a daily dialogue, casual conversation with anyone. You can practice it anyone, anywhere, any place, anytime, in any place right now. Of course, put an asterisk on that. However, you can use this across the board, regardless of industry, regardless of function, just from anything from a casual conversation to, of course, a brainstorming or ideation session. Yeah. I like that. All right. So we've been talking about this technique. I think it's just a really powerful one. Are there other techniques from improv that you think are particularly handy? I know the answer is yes. What's the next most important technique from improv that's really helpful for business? Postponing judgment. Okay. Postponing judgment is significant. It, it, in theatrical or comedic improvisation, if you go into a scene, especially in front of an audience, and you're judging what's being said, the audience will feel it. The audience will will recognize what's happening, maybe not on a cognitive level. They will regi- It will register with them, and quite often they might turn on you, especially if when you're postponing, or not postponing judgment, when you come in with judgment, you're negating what's being said or done on stage. In the business world, it looks very similar. It's really about not abandoning judgment. I can't stress this enough. It's divergent thinking versus convergent thinking. In the divergent side, you are deliberately deferring judgment. It's about... Uh, casual conversations, it's about ideation, exploration, experimentation, fail early, fail often, to push the judgment to another side, and that's the convergent side. And the convergent side, if you took the critical thinking hat off on the divergent side, you put it back on on the on the convergent side. That's where you sift, you sort, panning for gold, you get all the, the different debris out of the way until you finally come up with the right answer. And so this postponement of judgment works fabulously in the collaborative environment when you're trying to create this psychologically safe space wherein you're getting 100% engagement and 100% participation from 100% of the people in the meeting, once again, regardless of whether it's in person or through Zoom. This works across the board in a collaborative environment. It also, this postponement judgment, works really well on a one-on-one dialogue, especially if there's some tension there, some conflict there, some conflict there. Really just taking time not to rush to judgment. You're, once again, like you said, listening to understand. So you're postponing the judgment just so you can absorb it. You can take it in on all levels, whether it's the actual language, the physical language, the subtext inside of it. And do this to the best of your ability with an openness and vulnerability enough to be wrong as well. You're postponing judgment of yourself and the other person. So to really get to this place in the middle, which is the common understanding and the forward movement and the alignment. Okay. So can you give me an example of a conversation in which judgment is postponed? Absolutely. Sure. Let's take a a debate. Okay. In a debate, it's not a political debate, of course, where they're just regurgitating the practice stuff they've said over and over again. They're talking points. In a real debate, group A 
makes their statement, their stance, this is our, our perspective of this thing, and these are our points that are going to support our perspective. So what does Group B do? Do they sit there and cross their arms, just shake their head, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, 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 wrong. Group B is listening, right? They're listening to what the other team is saying and how they're saying it, what are their talking points that support Group A's idea, and they're going to cherry-pick them. Say, you know, you use these points to support you, your idea. We're actually going to show you why those same talking points support our perspective better, and we're going to introduce new ideas that are going to further buttress our argument. What is they okay. do? Do they shut down? Like, no, you guys are dumb. No, no, they're listening. They're absorbing. So in a classic debate, you're actually postponing enough judgment of what the other person is saying to take their little nuggets of gold and put them in your basket to further support your argument. Okay. That's a great analogy of what a live debate training is all about. Okay. Boy, would that be very different from most of the presentations I hear from Group A and Group B in a business where Group A is speaking, Group B isn't really even listening, let alone judging. They're just not they're kind of waiting their turn, I guess is the best way to say it, rehearsing in their own head. Okay, how do I practice this postponing judgment? Uh, well, first, I would say be thoughtful, be deliberate. This, in that spirit of um, really just being present in the moment, catch yourself if you're rushing to judgment and pull yourself away from that as well. This being strategic or deliberate and intentional has to have purpose as well. So setting yourself up for success. So let's say that you have this presentation, giving yourself a little time before the presentation to get in the right headspace. Be mindful that when you go in there, this is a goal of yours, and you're really going to take time throughout this process to listen to what somebody else is saying postpone judgment of what they're saying and see what value you can pull out of that. Even if the value is opposite of what they're arguing, you're making your counterpoint, it, you still are forcing yourself to be in the moment. And then okay. um, accountability practices with other people as well, just like with yes and. You can find somebody, a significant other, a, a good buddy, a friend, uh, someone on your team that you have a, a, you're aligned with and say, hold me accountable. If I'm slipping into saying but a whole lot, when, once it's done, don't, you don't have to hold me accountable in front of the client. Yet once it's done, you give me, you become my coach. Tell me if I was using yes but. Tell me if I was not postponing judgment, if I was too busy in my own head thinking about why I need to pitch this, sell this, present this in this way, and I missed the offers that the client, customer, consumer, peer were saying to me. Okay. Okay. I know um, when I talk with people who are specialists at resolving conflict, and we're talking about massive conflict where we hate each other and can't collaborate, and we're trying to create collaborative environment, this notion of postponing judgment is one of the core elements of success. So I see how your two techniques create help with conflict resolution, and they help with creating collaborative space, let alone with the creativity. So, Bob, this is a perfect place to take a break. So my guest is Bob Coolhan. The book is Getting to Yes And. You can go to Bob's website at bobcoolhan.com. That's spelled B-O-B-K-U-L-H-A-N. And if you go there or follow him on Twitter at Coolhan or at BizImprov, you can find a free guide that's called A Simple Hack for Better Communication at Work 
on the website businessimprov.com slash free dash download. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about how this applies to changing a culture. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or Amazon Kindle. The Voice America interactive radio player powered by Aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for your iPhone, Android, or Amazon Kindle powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Bob Coolham. The book is Getting to Yes And. And if you go to um, www.businessimprov.com, improv.com slash free dash download. You can download a free guide called A Simple Hack for Better Communication at Work. And we've been talking about how improv theater applies to business conversations. And I'll follow that with life conversations, home conversations, children conversations, parenting conversations, every conversation everywhere. We've been talking about two techniques in particular. One is this concept of yes and, where yes and leaves the other person feeling heard and feeling imported and feeling valued, and it's opening up to possibilities. And then we have been talking about the um, second technique, which I just lost my notes on, that forces you to um, listen first without responding. So postponing Postponing judgment. judgment. I just lost the words that you use for it. All right. (laughs) I'd love to hear about the third technique because I think you need the three together to get a full picture of how this works. So what's the third technique that you think is so important? The third technique is uh, being in the moment. 
at a high level. So this is uh, thinking slow to move fast. And thinking slow to move fast is very much like the first matrix, the, the good matrix, where the bullets was in by Neo and it's the introduction of the 360 cameras. You see the ripples behind the bullet. It's the ability to take a breath and control your emotions, even recognize your counterpart's emotions as well, to really slow the world down to make sure that those words still are gold, you are still postponing judgment, and you're living at least in a yes-and philosophy so that you're accepting what's being said or being done, and you're contributing in some capacity to it. So that's slowing the brain down to think fast to move slow, uh, think slow, rather. Think slow to move fast. That's the one. Uh, really is a great gift for being in the moment. Okay. And how do you practice it? I mean, it sounds like a great idea, but we all live in such a rush, 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 rush. A, how do I convince people that thinking slow to move fast works? And two, how do I practice it? I mentioned before a, a great technique, which is uh, setting yourself up for success, success in advance. So really understanding that if you have an important engagement in any capacity, giving yourself that time to prepare is an imperative, and that's centering yourself. So if it's a, something live, what I would always say is, you know, go early, walk the space, look at the, the challenges that might exist, um, mentally prepare yourself. You can, it, when I've said, uh, I used to say meditate to business people, and they would just kind of like roll their eyes at me as if I was asking them to braid their hair with flowers. And when I say visualize, they say, ooh, athletes visualize. I can, I can visualize. So whether it's meditating or visualizing, think about what's going to come into place. Think about who the key players are, the key stakeholders, even their tendencies of behavior so you can hold your own on, in check, especially if there's going to be some tension to it. And then enter deliberately and intentionally with this mindset because what you've done there is both physically and mentally put yourself in a position to succeed at a high level the way athletes do. So athletes before competitions, do you think they're like shooting out like three, oh, just two, two more emails really fast. Oh, I got one, quick, one quick phone call and then I'm going to come running into this, this uh, event, this arena. They're, they're stretching out. They got the Beats by Dre on. They're visualizing. They're trying to stay loose so that they enter into that competition performing at the top of their intelligence to the best of their ability. And that's the same thing we should do, especially before important engagements, regardless of in-person or virtual, center, centering ourselves so that once it's game time and if it does start moving quickly, we know how to pull back and be focused in the moment. Yeah, I love, I love that. Athletes about to go out for the game that's going to win the championship or the medal or the whatever it is. Oh, let me rush off these last two emails. I think that's a great <laughs> analogy. I find people conceptually sort of get this, but they struggle to put it in practice because the imperative to do, 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 do gets in the way of the deliberate, to be of being deliberate. Do you have any advice other than understanding what athletes do on how to get my mind clear that this deliberate think slow to move fast works? Yes, absolutely. So especially in high-risk, high-tension situations, chaos, the um, tendency is to want to rush, right? Whether it's adrenaline kicking in or anxiety, We just have to do things, yet that doesn't always mean that we're doing things thoughtfully. It just means that we're doing things. 
And so the, I almost call it a counter-argument that I would make is, how often as you're rushing through doing as many things as you can, are you making mistakes? Because if you're making mistakes and you're catching the mistakes, first of all, that's one thing, and then correcting the mistakes, that's something else. How much more time are you spending correcting the mistakes as opposed to just doing it correctly the first time? So being able to prioritize what's going on, which is important as well, as opposed to try to multitask and juggle 15 things at once, say, this is my pecking order. This is the, these are the things I need to do today versus I want. These and wants do very different things that are also core components to great improvisation, knowing the difference between what you need and what you want and prioritizing, then this puts you in a better position to not get caught on this uncontrollable downhill sled ride and get off of that and say, all right, I'm going to walk down the hill and I'm going to just take the sled with me. Yeah. Okay. I like that idea. I like this notion of thinking about how many mistakes you're making as you're rushing and how much it's costing you in time to correct, corral, recommunicate, alter, shift courses, all of those sorts of things. It reminds me of um, Paul Extel, who I always call the meeting guru because he's got a great understanding of what makes for effective, efficient meetings. And when he said he's top performing teams and business He says in their meetings, they're 100% focused on the content in the meeting, 100%, meaning zero distractions, no emails, no computers, no typing, nothing, 100% focused. And that's exactly what you're talking about here, this thinking slow to move fast. I love it. Okay. I want to talk now a little bit about what I said at the beginning, that these techniques create adaptability. Um, Some organizations will call that agility, flexibility, might even use the word versatility. How do you see these techniques creating adaptability? All right. So improvisation, since it takes place in the moment and it is collaborative, once again, you don't know what the other person or people in the show with you are going to do at any given time. So it is. Uh, based in change. It's based in the unknown. And the it's celebrating ambiguity. So this means if you are going to celebrate the ambiguity and live in the unknown and thrive in the unknown on top of that, you have to be super agile. You have to be on your toes and adaptable to anything and everything that's thrown at you. And those techniques that we mentioned before, most specifically, of course, yes and, lend themselves to agility. Because you're not coming in stubborn saying, I'm going to force this to happen, I'm going to make this take place, what you're saying is, I'm going to make an initiation, and I'm going to be open to see what other people are going to do, how they're going to respond, react to my initiation, and then I'm simply just going to react to how they reacted to me, and then we're all just going to adapt together to the situation until we achieve the outcome that we're going for. And so when you really embrace business improv techniques and root them, of course, with that foundational block of yes and, you become agile, adaptable, flexible by nature. Okay. Wow. Because I can't get too committed to a way or my way if I'm practicing all these techniques. I have to be open to what comes from somebody else, which I can't script or predict or know in advance. I love that, this notion that I have to be to celebrate the unknown and the ambiguity in it. Okay, Bob, I know you've seen these kind of techniques and practices change companies' cultures. So can you give me an example of how you've seen that work, how this helps? Absolutely. So 
it helps tremendously. And I'm going to pause for a second because, Wanda, you just triggered something in me, which sure. is to say that though we're, we're being flexible and adaptable and open to what other people are saying to ultimately get to the best outcome, that does not mean that there's not a, a strategy, right? That does not mean that you don't have a goal in mind or a mission. We have to make this happen. It just means that you're, you're willing to break whatever strategy is in place. It's, it's an Eisenhower quote. Planning is everything. Plans are useless. So you, you do all the planning. You do all the prep work. You know where you need to go. You know what the mission is and the desired outcome. And then you're open to really getting the best practices from everyone to get to that outcome and then make sure that outcome is the truly the best outcome. It's not the best outcome because you say it's the best outcome and it's in your head and you're forcing it. It's we did this together and by doing it together, we've elevated this outcome. Reminds me of a leader I worked with years ago whose organization achieved the what seemed like the impossible success in the midst of a crisis, too, I might add. And when I talked to his team, I interviewed absolutely every one of them. And I said, why? Why did you take this chance? Why did you come and work for this person? And everybody said the same thing. He was absolutely crystal clear about the goal. It was non-negotiable. We were going to hit the goal, but totally open to how. A completely mm-hmm. flexibility to how. And I think that's exactly what you're saying here, is that there is a bit of a strategy or a mission or a goal, an objective at the end, but and some planning, but that we're not so wedded to that that we can't adapt along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And in doing so, what he... Uh, uh, he or she, I'm not sure if the gender of this leader, however, any leader, what any leader will be doing is fostering talent. They're creating intrinsic motivation in the people around them to want to participate because what you're getting from them is their participation and you're valuing their participation and they become, they feel more valued. They feel more valuable and they feel like their contribution is valued as well. And so, in doing so, you create this, this great team, the cohesion of a team, trust inside of a team, and they believe in you because you believe in them. So it really, to a lot, you mentioned before, how have I seen this work, and I'm mentioning it. This is how I've seen this work over and over again. It, I've seen it lower ego, especially in, you know, <laughs> I work with a lot of high-level people. I don't even want to mention an industry by name. Uh, <laughs> some some the high-level individuals come with a fair amount of, of ego, a fair amount of um, almost um, arrogance, and that could be dangerous as well. So this is a good way to level that, level status, create open playing fields, and status is not the same thing as rank, for the record. It doesn't mean that the CEO stops becoming the CEO because she is able to lower her status to the same level as the, the lowest person in the team. It just means that at that time, in that environment, that's what's needed to get open collaboration, because otherwise a lot of people will just defer to the boss. And so the, that leveling of status, that lowering of ego, that tempering of arrogance is needed to create these environments in which people say, yeah, I will follow you. I will follow you into the worst environments of the world because you believe in me and I believe in you. Yeah. This is, it's interesting that you say this, you believe in me and I believe in you. I have this fundamental belief, you know, we talk about trust all the time, but that trust is is um, given because I give it first. 
And that's what you're saying. The A leader who believes in me, I'm going to believe in them. A leader who listens to me, values me, wants to hear my opinion, honors that opinion even if they disagree, just encourages me to feel more engaged, more a part of it, more committed, and to follow more intensely. Okay? Absolutely. It's creating that, like, once again, psychologically safe space. And okay. to a degree really a fair degree for a lot of people, especially when morale is low and challenged, you're also bringing dignity. You're providing dignity for other people to to accept their own dignity and and your dignity in in return. Okay. Especially when morale is low, yeah. Okay. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, Bob, along the way of this works virtually, um, yes. Any because you know, I think everybody's coping with their own levels of emotion and stress and complexity, whether that's trying to homeschool and work at the same time, or if it's just the fact the internet isn't as smooth in your home as it would have been in your office. There's a whole, or you're worried about family members. There's a whole host of stuff that's pulling us apart. How do these kind of approaches make us better in the virtual world and in the current crisis? Yes. All right, so one, um, it's really, I'm going to go back to yes and with this, okay? It's accepting that this this is the reality, and this is the reality for the foreseeable future. And we may not like this reality, and it may not be easy, because it's not. It just means that this is what it is. So what can we control? That's the and. What is in our environment that we can control? If I have to work at the kitchen table, and my wife has to work at the kitchen table because we don't have a designated office space, and we have to homeschool the kids, and it's chaos. And well, how can what can we put into place to provide structure? What can we put into place so that we're collaborating to really do the best we can to manage the situation? Where is the give and take inside of that as well? So that if one person does need privacy to have a radio interview, for example, that person can have an isolated room so that, in this case, I'll just be first person specific, he can have a little privacy and connect and engage and focus, concentrate. And so that, to me, is, is part of the root of it. It's vulnerability as well, knowing that all of us are going through this. Everybody's going through this. And we have to be then accepting to how other people are going through it because everyone's going to, even though it's a, a common experience, it's 100% shared by everybody, everyone's going to go through it differently and at different times. And so when I just had a, a meeting with a several high-level executives uh, two days ago, and one woman had her daughter just come into the room and sit on her lap, and she was there for about half an hour of this Zoom meeting, and that is 100% acceptable. We knew where all of our focus was, and as long as you can understand that everyone's going through it, then we're, we're going to get through this together. Yeah. And that's part of really the greatest stuff of business improv and improv as a whole. Yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're right in some ways. We're improving everything because we've never been here before. I think that's what's interesting about it. And I love your comment about there was just a Zoom meeting and the daughter comes in and sits on her lap. You know, six months ago, we wouldn't have been quite so okay even mentioning the fact that you had kids in a business meeting. And suddenly, it's now really perfectly okay for the kids to wander across the screen because we know we're all doing it. I think there's something that's very human about that that I hope we don't lose. 
when this part is over. Um, I hope so, too, because really there's two things to that. One, it's going to come back again. You know, it's, there's a 2.0, so let's keep this human factor, let's embrace this human factor, and let's live, with, live within this human factor because we are the only thing that's going to help us get out of this. Okay. So three techniques, yes and, which is both mental, verbal, and um, with body language, postponing judgment, meaning I'm here to listen to what you have to say. There will be another time for sifting and sorting, but not right now. I'm just listening and absorbing what you're saying to me. And then the go think go slow. To, how did you say this? Think slow to go fast, meaning yeah, slow, slow it fast. down enough to actually really understand. I love the metaphor you gave of instead of rushing down the hill with a sled, this time I'm going to walk down the hill with a sled and hopefully make fewer mistakes and get it done faster and so on. So, and I love the fact that you said that all using these techniques lowers the ego, they lower the status so that people are really open to the collaboration and not just deferring to the boss. And it creates this lovely engaged environment on a team that we've all been aspiring to do for the last several decades and haven't succeeded in doing, that people are feeling they can give their input, they're feeling valued, there's a sense of cohesion and trust. They believe in you as the leader just as you believe in them as a person. I'm going to give you one minute for this last question, though, Bob, which is you've mentioned the word psychological safe space on a number of occasions. And we know from a host of people's work how important that is from Google Teams as well as Amy Edmondson's work. And Amy would say that one of the hallmarks of things that you do for psychological safety is to admit that we have not been here before, that this is new. Do you have one last bit of advice on creating psychological safety? Yes, and it, it's it's everything you just mentioned, and just being since we've never been here before, and this is new. Be open and vulnerable to what everybody's saying to you, and listen, 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 listen. Because whether it's the actual language or the subtext side of it, some people are asking for help and need it, and some people are not listening to people ask for help. So those more human conversations. I would say if you are in a leadership position, be open to those as well because um, that psychologically safe space needs to extend itself to everyone's home, everyone's bedrooms that they're working in, their kitchen, their offices, wherever they might be. Okay. Fabulous, Bob. Great show. Lovely conversations. I repeat, yes and postpone judgment. Think slow to go fast. If you want to know more, visit Bob's website at bobcoolhand.com or businessimprov.com slash free dash download for that free book. The book we've been talking about is Getting to Yes And. Bob, thanks for being a guest today. Oh, thanks for having me. I really, I really appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. It's great fun. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.